0: Well, the electoral ground is shifting in this campaign, and the polling continues to demonstrate that something may be going wrong or sideways even for the Liberals at this point. For the latest polling, we turn to Sean Simpson, Vice President of Ipsos Public Affairs. Good morning, Sean. Good morning. What is happening to the Liberal support right now?
1: Well, we're seeing that it's continuing to crater. At the start of the campaign, the Liberals had a five-point lead over the Conservatives nationally, which is likely why they called the election. It would, wouldn't have been that much of a stretch to get a majority government with that starting point. But since the campaign now, we're in the third week, and uh, Liberal support continues to decline. Last week, they were only ahead by one point, and now this week, they've 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 lost their position. In fact, the Tories are ahead by one point. It's a t- statistical tie, but the, the the net result is that uh, they're they're nowhere near a majority government, and in fact, at this point, are trying to cling on to government at all.
0: Wow. Okay. So then, Sean, is there any indication like why the voters seem to be changing their mind? What are they saying?
1: Well, I think that the prime minister has, has failed to articulate why we're having an election. You know, when we when the election was called, we asked Canadians whether they think it was necessary, whether we should have one during the pandemic. And the answer from the majority of them was no, we shouldn't. Uh, and uh, so the prime minister is, is seen to have a hidden agenda. Uh, but of course, his agenda isn't so hidden. It's to get a majority government. Uh, but in the absence of being able to find any any wedge issue, uh, Canadians are are saying, well, I, you know, the, the prime minister hasn't made his case. I'm going to look elsewhere. Jagmeet Singh is increasingly popular. The NDP are up a couple of points from where they were last week. Now at 23 percent of the national popular vote, that is seven points better than they did in the last election campaign. Wow! Uh, or, or to put it another way, almost 50 percent better. Uh, so uh, they'll end up probably stealing some seats from the from the liberals, uh, and uh, the Conservatives under Eric O'Toole are doing okay. People are looking at him; they they think he's he seems reasonable. He's shored up his base in Alberta and the Prairies. He's in a three way race uh, in uh, in British Columbia, and even Quebecers are looking at him with uh, with sort of those soft block supporters uh, giving him a chance to, to to make his case as well. So a lot of things shifting. Campaigns really matter. And if Justin Trudeau thought this was a slam dunk, it's going to be anything but.
0: This is what I was thinking, too. We always say that, oh, campaigns matter. But once again, we are seeing how critical they are. And the thing is, we saw that in 2015, where the grounds were ground shifted underneath the conservatives at that time. Uh, What about the Greens? You mentioned, like, we haven't heard much from them. It seems to me that their support is really slipping
1: yeah they're really having a hard time right now, so when the NDP uh score points, they have to take it from essentially two different places: One is the Liberal Party, and of course they are are going down, but the other is the Green Party right now, anime Paul and the, and the Green Party only polling at about four percent of the national popular vote that's worse than they uh, than they're showing in the two thousand and nineteen election, even within British Columbia, which is usually their their base of support uh, they can usually count on double digits uh, within British Columbia. Only 8% uh, Mm -hmm. are are saying they're going to support the Green Party. Obviously, the the internal um, tumult uh, within the party... Billing out it, it seems to be having an impact and maybe people uh just don't see enemy paul as, as as someone that they want to consider uh as, as part of the leadership within canada
0: you mentioned Aaron o'toole doing the right things here it certainly seems that way i know the usual liberal thing is to paint them as scary but do you think what's been successful for him this time is that he's he just has come he's quite moderate he just seems quite reasonable and that seems to be yeah. winning people over
1: yeah, I think it was very smart of the conservative campaign in the opening days of the election to go to Quebec and to say to Quebec, this is my contract with you, this is what I believe, this is who I am. Don't let anybody else tell you otherwise because you're hearing it from the from the horse's mouth right now. And and that that news got out, not just in Quebec but in English Canada, and and that's why the Liberals have failed to to find a, a wedge issue. It's not climate change. He's not a climate change denier. It's not abortion because he, he believes in women's woman's right to choose. So all of these these um, policies, which are, are usual sticking points for some conservative leaders like Andrew Scheer, who sort of waffled on some of these key points, Aaron O'Toole is nipped in the butt. And that has left the liberals um, uh, without a, a, a good attack against him. And people think that he's quite reasonable as a result.
0: Right. And that, and I guess that's a gamble for him, right? Because, you know, in the end, your conservative, your diehard conservative voters are still going to vote for you.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, the, the, the polling up until the election campaign didn't make that sound a certainty. Uh, the, the conservatives within Alberta, for example, were only polling in the 30s, and, and the NDP was only five points behind. This isn't provincially, this is federally within the province right. of Alberta. Uh, now, when the election was called, the conservatives immediately bounce back to the 50 plus uh, percent support that they that they normally get so that, that the core was rallying around Aaron O'Toole. But, you know, the, the dance that he has to play is how far centrist can he go before he ends up alienating the, the base, the core of, of his party, much of which is in Alberta. And it doesn't look like there's a risk at the moment because because Tories seem to have rallied around their leader without much gain in support for the People's Party and Maverick candidates, for example.
0: Right. So he seems to be straddling that very well uh, yeah and uh, you know nothing uh, 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 nothing
1: is as successful as, as showing that it works right so if, if he can stop a, a liberal government if he can become the prime minister uh, I can't imagine that uh, even the, you know more conservative Tories are going to have a problem with being in power
0: <laughs> right It worked for Stephen Harper though didn't
1: it yeah absolutely and you know Brian Mulroney was able to do that yeah. uh, it could be connect Alberta and Quebec You know, and 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 maybe Aaron O'Toole is 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 laying the groundwork for this. I mean, certainly the the Bloc are now taking greater aim at the Conservative Party. Jagmeet Singh has said he's willing to work with the Conservative Party, which essentially legitimizes and and sort of normalizes a vote for them. So it can't be that scary to vote Conservative if if the NDP are willing to back them in a minority situation. All of this spells terrible news for the Prime Minister. And he hasn't uh, yet been able to stem the the ebb of support leaving the Liberal right. Party.
0: Well, it makes your job so much more interesting, though, heading into election day, Sean.
1: <laughs> it's a lot of fun.
0: All right. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you.
1: Take care. Bye-bye.
0: All right. Time for us to have a little chat with Vaughn Palmer for the Vancouver Sun this morning. Hi, Vaughn. Good morning, Simi. All right. Let's uh, summarize what we heard yesterday from Dr. Bonnie Henry. I know the line. The line is that we are in a pandemic of the unvaccinated.
2: Uh, That's what she says, and the data does bear that out. Uh, The line, however, that jumped out to me yesterday was, we're not where we wanted to be. Dr. Henry uh, presented uh, a look ahead yesterday, but she also presented a look back, and uh, one page in her presentation showed uh, what they did back in June, where they expected to be, and where they ended up, and there was a huge gap. So, Remember, back in June, we got restart phase three. We got uh, no more requirements on masks. We got uh, enjoy the summer, stay safe. Uh, We got Dr. Henry saying uh, no need for vaccine passports. She was opposed to the idea. And then the summer begins to unfold, and her chart shows it. They expected relatively Uh, slow action on the pandemic front, Uh, no surge in cases, no surge in hospitalizations, no surge in ICU, and instead they got all of those. They got the fourth wave, and we've seen what they had to do about it in the last couple of weeks. The result, and again, I was really struck by what she acknowledged yesterday, which is resources are, again, stretched thin in the healthcare system. And one of the reasons we've had restrictions in the past is to keep the system from being overwhelmed. Um, it's in pretty serious shape in a lot of parts of the province. Here's another thing she disclosed. She disclosed that they've had to triage contact tracing. So the central way you track the pandemic is you contact all the contacts of anybody with a case. They're not, they don't have the staff to do that. Uh, So they've been prioritizing it among the highest risk cases. You put all that together, and as I said, her comment that we're not where we wanted to be um, is understatement. Uh, This uh, thing didn't go the way they expected this summer at all, and as a result, uh, we're in a pretty serious
0: predicament. Uh, Yeah, we are there too. But do you think this heavy emphasis on the last week or so of of showing how serious it is. Do you think that has has helped? Because I know Dr. Henry said that it shows that vaccination rates are picking up.
2: Yes, there are two things that are encouraging. Uh, The first one is that the, um, the case count, although it is rising well beyond where they expect it to be, is not translating into as many people in hospital and as many people in the ICU. There are... Clusters of trouble. There are some long-term care places where we've had outbreaks. There's one here in Victoria. But in general, while the case count is where it was back in April, which is certainly not where they want it to be, so back in the third wave, the hospitalizations and the ICU rates aren't as high. They're climbing, but they're not as dramatic. The difference there is the other thing that was pretty encouraging in the stats yesterday, and I and I thought they did a great job of presenting this. We've we've had trouble talking about the pandemic to convey the right drama of the difference between vaccinated and being unvaccinated. So some people who are vaccinated uh, still do get COVID-19. It it just happens. The vaccines aren't 100% effective and some people are vulnerable. But the stat they gave us yesterday, the two stats that really jumped out, if you are unvaccinated, you are 10 times as likely to get COVID-19 as a person who is vaccinated. And you're 17 times more likely to end up in hospitals. I think that... Conveyed that drama well, and it is as you say, Simi. It is getting through to the public. People are getting vaccinated now. The numbers we were given yesterday is there are thousands of people that are lining up to get vaccinated. Um, being the pandemic pessimist that I am. <laughs> I do have to note that there are still over a million British Columbians who are either unvaccinated or under-vaccinated, under meaning they've only got the first shot, not the second, although most people who get the first shot do get the second. We've still got just over 700,000 people that are not vaccinated. So we got a ways to go. Um, they're not where they want to be. It's interesting they she said they're going to be more cautious in putting out these models in the future they're only going to do it month by month and the projections for this month are they think it's uh, going to level off they'll still be climbing the cases but uh, no overwhelming in the hospitals and they're going to be revisiting it before the end of the month so they're not looking out much beyond the end of september
0: it's interesting, though, as well, this news coming out of Ontario this morning, isn't it, that they're also going with a vaccine passport. So it doesn't really matter what party the government is, whether it's Conservative, NDP, whatever. It just seems like vaccine passports are the way to go.
2: Yeah, it is. And uh, I think, you know, that's been acknowledged all over the place. Is that it's not just the B.C. government. It's not just Dr. Bonnie Henry, um, who's looking at this. Um, We also heard, uh, Simi, for the first time yesterday, some fairly serious talk about booster shots. So uh, some places have already gone to it. Uh, Dr. Henry indicated that booster shots are coming for probably first for the folks who are medically vulnerable for other reasons, but a uh, fairly strong hint that booster shots are coming for people in long-term care. The the problem in long-term care, she talked about it yesterday, um, is even though most all residents virtually and most staff and visitors are vaccinated, um, people in long-term care, uh, they're vulnerable for other reasons. They can still get COVID-19, and if they get it, because they're medically vulnerable, um, they're in serious trouble. They can end up in hospital. And so she indicated there that probably we're going to be getting booster shots there as well. Um, the other thing we got a pretty strong hint on yesterday is that the, the requirement for healthcare workers which is already applied. They must be vaccinated if they work in long-term care. Um, Pretty strong hint. uh, The government's working with the public health care unions. Probably vaccine requirements coming elsewhere in the health care system. Health Minister Adrian Dix pointed out that there's overlap in the vulnerable population between people in acute care and people in long-term care, and they go back and forth between the two systems. So healthcare workers in both systems are going to have to be vaccinated is the pretty strong indication coming yesterday.
0: Right. Okay. So lots of changes coming, and so they. It sounds like they don't really expect the numbers to go down, though. That they're going to stay, you know, in that six seven hundred range. Uh, the
2: case count is going to continue to climb. Uh, they they indicated that. As I said, they're they're more cautious than they were uh, back at the end of June. I think learned their lesson about excessive optimism and about time. In my view, that they did learn that. But there you go. Um, I, I the other area that I sort of raised an eyebrow about the schools. So, you know, the school's back next week. Yeah, And Dr. Henry was asked, you know, given the, given the question of vulnerability, given the fact that there's still no vaccine for children under the age of 12, given the climb, we've, we've had a stat. Uh, which was in her modeling yesterday, which shows a climb in the number of cases of school-aged uh, children from 45 cases to 350 cases. So it's a pretty steep climb. So they asked, "Well, why why aren't you requiring staff and teachers in the school system to be vaccinated, to come back to work, Yeah, um, given the vulnerability of children? And... <laughs> I thought it was a sidestep. She said, well, you know, we have to consider risk things and we're reluctant to sort of force people to get vaccinated. Then, then she said, well, parents should be vaccinated. Well, yes, they should. A a certain number of cases with children where contact tracing is still working. It's an indication that the kids who are catching it, their parents are unvaccinated, which shocks me that parents would do that. But anyway, uh, but yeah, parents certainly should be vaccinated. But I, I, I don't get the argument in terms of safety for children that says um, we shouldn't be requiring vaccination yeah, me neither. Past, uh, pa- vaccinations for teachers and staff in the school
0: system. I tried to talk to Terry morning about this the other day. I said, well, why why not, as a union mandate? why not say we want everybody to be vaccinated? They believe that they're, you know, doing enough by suggesting and telling people to do it. The teachers are doing it. But clearly there's a lot of them who aren't. Yeah. Well, they say
2: there's going to be vaccination widespread available. They're encouraging it. Um, That's been the BC approach to encourage not to make it compulsory. Dr. Henry is not a fan of compulsory. Um, I, I see the argument and all of that, but You know, again, every day we see stories that businesses are doing it. uh, All kinds of businesses are doing it. The business community is begging for it in some places, although, yes, I realize there's an issue with the Yahoos out there. Uh, But look, uh, the provincial government isn't requiring it. Uh, Just last week, the head of the public service. Put out a note saying, uh, you know, uh, when you come back to work, um, no, you don't have to be vaccinated. So why the government isn't setting an example like that, I still don't get it.
0: Me neither, Vaughn. Thank you.
2: Bye-bye, Simi.
0: Well, we heard last week Premier John Horgan tell businesses that, you know what, you should call the police if you're confronted by customers who refuse to abide by our incoming vaccine passport system. And there was a lot of controversy about that, right? The police are saying, well, wait a minute, that's going to be a lot of phone calls. Can we do this? Do we have time for this? Fact of the matter is we already see people, too many instances of people behaving badly when they're asked to do something simple like put a mask on. And this has become a bigger concern considering that our vaccine passport system is about to get underway. You're going to need to prove that you've had at least one dose of vaccine by September 13th and two doses by October the 24th to access a variety of services like restaurants, movie theaters, gyms. So let's talk about how restaurants are going to deal with this. Joining us now is Ian Tossenson, the president of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. Good morning, Ian.
3: Good morning, Simi. How are you doing?
0: I am good, thank you. Now, I know I'm sh- you must be feeling a little bit apprehensive about this.
3: Yeah, we actually had a really interesting uh, and productive meeting yesterday with our what we call the advi- Restaurant Advisory Group. We submitted yesterday afternoon, a whole list of, of ideas for the government to consider, and and I think if we can get down that road, so we're talking about things like clear, obvious signage when you go to a business—in our case, restaurants—that say we are, you know, we're, we are enacting a provincial health law, and you know, please be nice and cooperate, you know, and just give the the consumer um, the the notion that you know we're just doing work that we didn't invent this. We're doing the work that we have to do. We think that's going to help. We think that's, um, you know, in the news today is a little bit about quick service restaurants and security. There are, as this idiot yesterday or on the weekend showed at the Dairy Queen in Port Alberta, yeah. those high risk situations. And when I yesterday came out in our meeting is that some QSRs, so quick service restaurants, may consider closing their dining rooms. And I think that's a real travesty considering that we're trying to execute something here in the public interest. And then suddenly now, maybe we have to close restaurants. The idea of, you know, security guards maybe temporarily and uh, in in certain locations with some help from the government, is not a bad idea. Because in that situation, you've got the direct contact between the person that walks in and the counter. And in most cases, they're young. It makes me really sad. They're young, first-time job people. The gal on the, on the TV last night, it was heartbreaking to hear her it was. talk about a, a man urinating in front of her. I mean, come on, we've lost her decency here. So so that's the signage is going to be really important. The public messaging from the government is going to be critically important. And I'm just hoping that, you know, maybe we are over-preparing here. We can't over-prepare, but it's not going to be as bad as we want. I'm just really hoping to appeal to the decency of people that they're not buying into this. They can stay home. They can order food. They don't have to come in and disrupt especially the young people that work in our industry. And, and when we get into those kinds of situations, then it all becomes harder to recruit or keep people or people don't want to work in the situation.
0: Exactly. And we,
3: we've got to put an end to this. So, you know, I think all of us the, that are on the side of let's do this right really have to push back. And, it's, and we've asked the government to get tough on not just people that, like the fool in, in Port Alberni and, and find them, but also businesses that I want to defy the health order. There's no way that you know thousands of businesses in our sector should be doing this at the exp- and they have a few people who just don't okay. want to play ball. So I think uh, we'll get through it, Simi.
0: Yeah. What about the, the security guard issue that you mentioned there? How has that gone over? And are you kind of floated that idea, asking for some help with that? How has that gone over?
3: We don't know yet. Um, you know, it was just really came out of a conversation I had on global uh, news last night as an idea. So we haven't put that forward to the government formally. I think it's something that we. You know, to be practical about this, we'll have to see in the first few days of this uh, exactly what the public reaction is. And if we feel that it's needed, then I think we would sit down. And, and, and. But at least the government's got it on their radar screen right now. A lot of these businesses, you know, if you close the dining room of a quick service restaurant, it could be 50% of their sales. And, you know, that could be, you know, seventy or $80,000 a month in sales. And, of course, you're laying off people again. Uh, and so we don't want to see that. So we'll see what the government says. I mean, I think the government has indicated in general uh, a very strong desire. They've taken the industry's document from yesterday, and we are going to get into some pretty fast conversations. They can't have happen fast enough, frankly. I think that the only criticism I have is we should know what the system is today, uh, and it may not be till after the long weekend. And it doesn't give us a lot of time to properly prepare.
0: How much of a complication does this put, Ian, as well, on an industry that is already short-staffed?
3: Uh, I just think it's you, know, it's, you know, what's happening, the psychology of our industry is, here we go again and we'll deal with this. And the sentiment yesterday was, we've dealt with all sorts of problems and we get through it. They're very resilient uh, industry. And, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing to work with the people They figure it out. But, you know, when you have the labor challenge and then, you know, do we have to divert now more labor in some cases to the front door? um, It means what happened in Victoria last weekend where restaurants will start to close. There were some restaurants in in Victoria that closed last weekend because of labor. So they can compress the the rest of the week and utilize the labor that they have. So we're seeing... You know, shorter hours, some closures, uh, menus that are simplified, uh, and, you know, it's just, and that's going to take months to sort it out. I think we get in the fall, the the pressure on labor is going to be a little less, but, you know, certainly uh, this type of, um, you know, vaccine passport, which we support and we think is absolutely necessary, is is going to require some training and some a diversion of uh, at, you know of our resources to deal with it. So yeah, yeah
0: I, I wonder about that as well because I know like business organizations have support this right. Uh, the big ones yeah. do, but you also hear on the ground level that there's businesses and there are restaurants who say, "Well, I'm not, I'm not going to support this. I'm not going to do this." How is an organization and association do you deal with that? That you've got members who say, "I'm not doing it."
1: Well.
3: Someone in an organization said, We will, you know, we will ask that person uh, not to be part of the industry, part of the, you know, part of membership. I don't think we have too many restaurants doing that. We know there's a few in Kelowna, um, but by and large, uh, there's a couple in Vancouver, at least one in Vancouver. But I think that most restaurants will see that we won't have to actually get involved in this. We're encouraging people not to do it because there's going to be consequences, but. You know, if you look what's happening in Quebec, there'll be uh, fines, and we've asked for the business community uh, fines and closures. I mean, there's you know no sense in sitting around and finding somebody and they continue to operate. It should be closed, and they should be fined depending on how serious it is, and they should be given the chance so to reopen and do it the right way.
0: Right. So it sounds like to make all this work, in we really need some enforcement.
3: We don't. We totally need enforcement, and I know. That's uh, we can't rely entirely on the police. That's not entirely realistic. It might be in smaller communities, but I think um, we're going to have to look at other things. So that's why we're looking at you know security cameras, security guards. I mean, this is this is crazy, right? Sandy so, talking about yeah. putting in security into a restaurant industry. Over this, I mean, the simplest part of it is we just accept the situation for what it is, get vaccinated, and get on with their lives and uncomplicate this. But um, but it's going to require. You a know, fair amount of diligence on the part of uh, you know, so we've got other inspectors that are there. There is work safe inspectors, there's um, liquor inspectors, there's all sorts of different inspectors that can be part of this. I know that uh, in exceptional circumstances in the restaurant industry, we have a, uh, um, a program called Restaurant Watch and that is simply an alert to the police that if you're not comfortable with what's happening in restaurants, right. they respond very quickly and they do respond very quickly. So I think that the elevated situations in a restaurant that are really serious, when you call out the 911, are going to be really serious, and I think the police will be there. So I'm not too worried about that. But we're not asking the police to come to every little dispute. We're going to have to learn to handle that ourselves.
0: All right, I have a feeling we're going to talk to you again about this. Ian, thank you. (laughs) Yeah, thanks. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Let's talk about that other public health emergency we have in this province, one that's been going on for what, five, six years now, having to do with overdose deaths in BC. The numbers we got yesterday show that we are nowhere near putting a dent in this problem, even though we say we've tried things. Are we really doing the things that need to be done? The government now says the illicit drug supply is becoming increasingly toxic. They're seeing extreme fentanyl concentrations and carfentanyl showing up more frequently in the toxicology testing that they're doing. So what needs to change? We're trying safe supply, but what is going on with that? Joining us now is Jeremy Calicum from the Drug User Liberation Front. Jeremy, thanks for being here.
4: Thanks for having me.
0: Now, this is a federal election campaign going on, Jeremy, so I'm sure there's a lot you would like to talk to some of the parties about.
4: Yeah, I mean, it would be nice if somebody would do
0: something. Like?
4: Like, we need a, a safe supply of drugs, one that people will actually access. And there's, you know, a few main points that go into that. One is that it needs to be something that people will actually access so as you increase medicalization of services, less people access them. So it needs to be something that, you know, is non-medicalized, which, which nobody seems willing to, you know, take a crack at. It can still be regulated, but, you know, when you start to bring in prescribers as the gatekeepers to this, um, you know, everything kind of goes to the, the like the trash, like, The prescribers don't want to be the gatekeepers to safe supply, and that's very clear. Right, so then,
0: but what do you do then? How do you get the safe supply into the hands of people?
4: I mean, there's no reason you can't have some sort of like community committee or community boards um, being the ones who are, you know, deciding like who does and who does not, you know, kind of get access to this, And, and really it's. what's going to, you know, save lives and what makes the most sense if somebody's already using drugs, they should be able to get their drug of choice uh, in a way that, you know, isn't dangerous to them. And, you know, what goes hand in hand with that is also being able to, you know, access you know recovery and treatment on demand if someone should want it
0: right but you isn't know, that the point not, isn't that the point of making the the health care system the gatekeepers because then there is access if you want if you say you want help that's the way to get in there and get help
4: i mean no i don't think that being the gatekeepers makes it more accessible to get help um anywhere you should go you should be able to you know ask for help and be connected to health care um but if it's if you're not asking for treatment or recovery, then there's no need to have healthcare there.
0: How do you make sure, though, that people are getting the amounts that they need, and not just it's not just a free for all? Because that's the other thing with safe supply, right? It doesn't mean that it's a a free for all with however much you want.
4: Right. I mean, well, that's that's part of the problem with the um, this medicalized safe supply is that you know they're trying to you know not give people. Um, you know the amounts that they want then people end up still going back to the street supply um so i think you know it it shouldn't be a free-for-all but you can certainly give people the amounts that they want and watch to make sure that you know, stuff isn't getting uh in, into the wrong hands but if people need the amounts that they're asking for they should be able to to get that
0: Jeremy, can you give me an idea of what it 's like in the drug using community right now when you know the drug supply is toxic how do you How do you deal with that
4: I mean just a, a kind of case in point um, last summer, I responded to over a hundred overdoses. Um, I know people who know over a hundred people who 've died. I know dozens of people who've who 've died um, and it's just, it's just devastating. I mean, you know, to really kind of wrap it all up is you've got this severe trauma that's, you know, kind of perpetuating the exact problem that, like, society claims that it's trying to solve. It's, it's you know, kind of self-medication. Um, but it's just, you know, you, there's a, a situation that's just spiraling out of control because of this in, you know, there's no desire to, to take action from any meaningful level.
0: Well, we're going to be talking more about that on the show. So listen, Jeremy, thank you for joining us this morning.
4: Thank you for having me.
0: We've spent the last couple of days talking a lot about our public health emergency when it comes to the lives that we've lost due to drug overdoses in this province. We got some updated numbers yesterday, too. So we now know that in the first half of this year, so the first half of 2021, at least 1,011 people died from suspected illicit drug toxicity in this province. That was data released by the BC Coroner's Service. So just up, up, and up is where the numbers seem to be going, despite talking about it, despite, you know, changing through the rules, having a safe supply, why aren't things improving? Well, joining us now to talk more about the problem is Lisa LaPointe, our chief coroner here in BC. Thank you very much for being with us.
5: Well, thank you for having me. Good morning,
0: Simi. It's must be frustrating for you as well. Every month you put together these numbers, you dig into them, and they just keep going up.
5: It is heartbreaking, really. I think it's the better word. We, you know, we as coroners, we have very close contact with the families of uh, those who die. And the heartbreak that we see amongst those families, and it's families, as you know, across all communities in the province, all walks of life, and just the devastation. Uh, last night I was at an event with Mom Stop the Harm, who are an advocacy group for um, changes to prevent more deaths. And you, know, you look at the faces of those women who have lost their children and, and you just know something has to change. We are just losing so much potential in our province. Uh, all of these you know, beautiful, wonderful people with so much to offer and uh, fell into substance use and substance dependency. And uh, basically, that was a death sentence. And we just don't have enough to offer people who are struggling with substance use.
0: And you touched on it too there. And that is that there's so many people of all different walks of life, all different backgrounds that this affects. And I feel like sometimes, Lisa, the general public doesn't fully understand that aspect of this.
5: No, I think you're right. And, we're, you know, it's funny, I, of course, we, we talk about this all the time, my agency and with a number of other agencies who all have significant interest and a real passion to reduce these numbers and um, save lives, prevent the suffering. And it's very, very difficult because what we are battling is decades of policy that stigmatized and villainized and created a climate where people were punished and shunned for substance use and so it's a big shift to turn around to to now try to help people come to an understanding that we're not talking about bad people they are not people that deserve to be arrested and punished and incarcerated they are people who are struggling with uh, problematic substance use uh, substance dependency they are good people they have a lot to offer and um, what we're really trying to do now is focus on a medical model where we say, okay, how can we provide interventions, supports, uh, means for people to function so they don't have to visit the illicit street market, which as we know is uh, profit-driven, unscrupulous in terms of its product, and uh, provide what people need so that they can stabilize uh, be supported to wellness and uh, at, at the very least reduce all of the social mayhem and the risk that comes with this um, for-profit black market.
0: Right, and I, I feel like the other thing that we really underestimate is the people who are selling these drugs and the lengths they're willing to go to to keep people hooked on them, hence drug toxicity.
5: Yeah, that's, that's a great point, Simi. And what we know is, for example, many of your street-level drug traffickers, which, you know, that's the term that we, we commonly use. They are users who are just as dependent. So they, it is a what we call, we're calling it now a pyramid scheme because that's how it works. So somebody at the top is reaping all of the rewards and millions and millions and millions. And then the more people that they can get, uh, uh, to become substance dependent, the more money they will make. So if you have somebody you are selling drugs to and you say, hey, if you can sell this much more, you know, you can get this for free or you, can, you don't have to pay this much. It, it's a, it's really trying to encourage more and more and more users. It's a terrible scheme. And in fact, if you think about it, we could not have designed a better scheme in this province to support drug traffickers uh, than the one we have now.
0: Right, and it, we've talked about this for years. It's been a public health emergency. Are What are we, like, what is holding us back from, do you think, really making a dent in this?
5: Well, I think there are a number of things. So first of all, um, we, we do really need to change hearts and minds around the need to make meaningful change that we are not, we are no longer needing to fund police and uh, courts and jails for this. We need to fund outreach services. We need to fund detoxification services. We need to fund meaningful recovery supports. Uh, We haven't spent a lot of time in this province actually looking at what works for people So, you know, you'll hear every now and then announcements of money for more beds. But what we have asked for uh, at the coroner service and uh, as a result of the death review panel that we did in 2018, which was uh, we invited a number of subject matter experts to the table to to look at the um, issue of uh, substance use and the fatalities we were seeing back then. And one of the things we don't have in this province is a fully regulated standardized system of care it just does not exist so there's just a, a you know a hodgepodge of services in, in a number of different health authorities but but you can't get a list and uh, you you know I, I, at one point I said can we at least try to reduce wait times for detoxification and what I was told was no that's a health authority issue that's health authority by health authority and we actually don't know what the wait times are per health authority so it just shows you that it's, it's such a um, we just don't have a coordinated system. And we do have a coordinated system for other life-threatening health conditions. If you have cancer, um, if you have a life-threatening disease, there is a diagnosis exactly, yeah. and there is a pattern for, for um, treatment. We don't have that here. Uh, you know, Families just struggle looking for help for their loved ones. And there isn't a lot to offer and... What is on offer sometimes, um, there's a lot of judgment involved and a a lot of bias. And that's very hard for people who have problems with substances because they're people like us. And uh, it's hard to to be treated uh, poorly over and over and over when trying to access services.
0: That is so true. Uh, Thank you so much for your time on that this morning.
5: Well thank you very much for um, for having me. This is such an important topic. I appreciate
0: it. It really is. That's Lisa Lapointe, BC's chief coroner. didn't want to miss out on this story because it is so good this morning. Uh, listen, what was it like for you to get this in the mail after five years?
6: Yeah, well, it was actually a tremendous relief, um, but it's been something that I've been hunting for quite a long time. Uh, I put in this materi- this request back in two thousand and sixteen uh, when when um, this issue was a very hot subject. Uh, and some whistleblowers had got in touch with me. But at the time, the Canada Revenue Agency just denied that it existed. So, um, yeah, no, it was very uh, a great relief to finally get it.
0: Okay, so give us an idea. So when you were reading through this, what did it tell you?
6: Well, it firstly told me that 90% of uh, luxury home purchases in these two municipalities of Metro Vancouver uh, at the time were being made by uh, millionaire migrants. And that's an, an astonishing Level, you know, ninety yeah. percent. For instance, in Bur- in Burnaby, um, we're talking about two hundred um, and forty three purchases between six hundred and eight hundred thousand dollars, which is a very high amount at the time. Um, only four of those purchases out of two hundred and forty three were made by uh, by, by long term residents of Canada. So it's you know really astonishing numbers.
0: It is. That's a shocking amount. So they've been sitting on this then for twenty five years.
6: Yeah, and I think that, uh, you know, that greatly disgruntled uh, the auditors who had worked on this study and, and um, you know, whistleblowers came forward to me uh, in 2016 and alerted me to the existence of this study and that was what prompted um, me to put in a freedom of information request at the time. Now, of course, I didn't anticipate that it was going to take five years before um, yeah. before I finally got my answers back, but I'm glad that I did.
0: Okay, so does this explain to us, this kind of goes in, I guess, with what we've always suspected, right? What we've talked about and have been told that, oh, no, no, that's not the case. But your study shows that that is the case. That's what's going on in our luxury housing market.
6: Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, I hope that this drives a stake through the heart the idea that this was um, a small phenomenon I don't think it was a small phenomenon I think it's an extremely large phenomenon and although we're only talking about um, you know two municipalities here Burnaby and Coquitlam uh, what the auditors also did was look at 6,000 purchases that had taken place in Richmond and Vancouver at the time and said that they found similar uh, demographic results similar results now, we don't actually have the data because that wasn't provided in my Freedom of Information search. But, um, yeah, no, it's, it's very gratifying to see this material.
0: So people were buying luxury houses, so expensive houses at the top end of the market, and they were doing it even though they were declaring very little income.
6: Oh, ridiculously low income. I mean, the average income that was being declared by these um, uh, people who arrived under millionaire migration schemes – was $16,000 at the time. You know, that's refugee-level income. And there was one case, for instance, of a guy who bought a house for $2.8 million in Burnaby, uh, and that year declared $174 of income. Not $174,000 of income, $174 of global income.
0: Um, okay, I'm a little speechless when you, when you point that out. So, Ian, did anything in this trigger then a check from Canada Revenue Agency? Like, theoretically, isn't that what's supposed to happen?
1: Well, that's you'd
6: think so, but what actually happened was that this, this um, study... Uh, appears to have been covered up. That's what I was told by my whistleblower source because this study um, uh, was suppressed by higher-ups in the Canada Revenue Agency. And certainly what happened after 2016 is there there appears to have been a witch hunt to try and find not not tax cheats, but, but the whistleblowers... That's what what it seems like Canada Revenue Agency devoted itself to after 2016 when I initially reported on the existence of this study. So it's all rather disappointing and strange.
0: No kidding. So around 2015, 2016, exactly when this story kind of exploded in the public consciousness as well. So here we are in the media all talking about it, and rather than at that point coming out and saying, actually, we have evidence of this, instead they did the opposite.
6: Well, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. I think the thing was that this went all the way up to the Director General of the CRA. What was in the ATIP search that I got back was that Susan Betts, who was the boss of the CRA at the time, was personally stick-handling inquiries about this study. She was personally approving the PR results um, that were being sent back to me, which said that they they, they, they refused to acknowledge the existence of the study. Now, um, she's now the uh, senior economist at the International Monetary Fund, so she doesn't play a role anymore. But I just find that so strange that this would go so far up to the top brass of the CRA to talk about denying the existence of this study why wasn't it released in 1996? Why wasn't it released automatically when I asked for it in 2016? Why wait five years? It's just ridiculous considering how long and how hard this issue has been debated in Vancouver.
0: Yeah. So, Ian, what has the reaction been? Now that you have it, you've written about it, it is out there, it's generating conversation. Has there been any comment from the Canada Revenue Agency?
6: No, I I mean, I haven't pursued them for for fresh comment, to be honest. Um, You know, I think a lot of other media organisations are now chasing this. I've, I think I gave the Canada Revenue Agency uh, quite a lot of time to consider their um, their public responses and I'm sure that in the fullness of time if they do want to make a public response they will um, but you know I, I I'm um, I'm I'm kind of um, cynical these days I'll about bet. how far these stories can move move the needle. But at least it's happening during a federal election campaign. Now that's not something by design, obviously. I I just got the results back when I did. Five years later, I wasn't trying to conspire to make this happen as an election issue. But maybe it will be an election issue. Maybe it should be an election issue.
0: Oh, it absolutely should be. Then. So, what questions do you still have now after reading through this report?
6: Well, I mean, I'd like to see the data that referred to Richmond and Vancouver. I mean, they allude to it; they talk about these six thousand purchases, um, that, and, 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 but they don't actually provide the data. So, I don't know if that exists. So I'd like to see that. Uh, I'd like the CRA to be held a bit accountable for um, failing to pursue this. I'd like to, to know why exactly they didn't didn't pursue this this system. And I'd also like to know why, whether or not, and whether or not this information was passed on. To uh, Canada's immigration authorities who were running these million nine m- migration programs and who shut them down 20 years later for the exact reasons that were identified by the auditors. You know, I mean, chronically yeah. low declaration of incomes.
0: If these people were supposed to come here with money to invest, where was that money?
6: It, I mean, the, the money came, but the, the income didn't. That's the thing, that um, money came to buy real estate and things like that, and, and wives and children were parked here in, in Canada. Um, but business went on um, uh, back in home countries, which is typically, typically mainland China and, and Taiwan and Hong Kong um, uh, for the greater period of time. Um, so business didn't come with these business migrants. That's the problem.
0: Okay, so where do you go from here? Like, what what is the next step that we talk about?
6: I mean, I I think some of the steps have been taken, so it's kind of a sad story in that, you, you know, these millionaire migration schemes were, one of them was in fact shut down in 2014, the IOP. The other one, the Quebec Immigrant Investor Program, has been suspended since 2019 until at least 2023. Now, they're the two main vehicles, and so they've sort of been iced. Um, but you know the impact is still being felt today because the foreign money that was brought by these by, by this cohort of people is still in Vancouver. It just doesn't go away. And I think that you know people sometimes think, oh, well, if you turn off the tap, that means the water goes away. It doesn't. You know, I mean, the pool of, of pool of foreign money in Vancouver exists regardless of whether or not it's been flowing, whether or not it's flowing in. Um, you know that's kind of a a sad and negative answer but um, you know that's where we are
0: it's true though right because it changed the way even Metro Vancouver focuses on things it turned it into this whole economy that was based on serving the people who made the most money
6: you know I I think phenomenon because I think it changed Vancouver. You know, I mean, I'm a relative newcomer to Vancouver. I came here, um, you know, in 2009, uh, and Vancouver at at that time was in the middle of a profound process of change, uh, and that was largely due uh, to foreign money. It was due to everyone's insane obsession uh, with with real estate and the way that it was... um, booming in ways that it was not, uh, you know, that was not happening uh, in the rest of Canada and also in the rest of the world. Canada, Vancouver went on to become one of the most unaffordable cities in the world. And I think that's something that Vancouverites need to remind themselves about. Uh, this is a phenomenon that turned Vancouver into a global basket case. Yeah. You know, this was something that
1: really changed the nature of our city.
0: So true. Uh, Ian, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you, Simi.